Welcome to the WNCT Podcast Network. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of What the Politics. My name is Victoria Holmes, and my co-host, Emily Severich, will be dialing in from a remote location for this episode of What the Politics. And today's topic will be about the law of the sea. And no, I'm not talking about pirates, even though we are here in eastern North Carolina. I'm talking about sustainability efforts and policy making. So we're going to go ahead and get right into our topic of conversation. But first, I'm going to let our guest introduce himself. All right. My name is Dr. Andrew Terrell. I'm an associate professor of political science and international relations at the University of San Diego. Um, I, I research many things, but uh, one of my major uh, research focuses is the um, marine policy um, realm. I, I think a lot about fisheries um, and fisheries policy, um, about the law of the sea, and about sustainability in general. So I, I have a new emerging project um, that looks at sustainability at the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, before I became a professor, I was um, a lawyer. I practiced as a lawyer for several years. I worked both in commercial law and in human rights, and did, did a lot of work also in international development um, around around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh- so I'm I'm curious about this law of the sea, and and for someone who's not familiar with, I guess, really the policies that go around and the limitate not limitations, but kind of just like the the idea that there might be a different law when it comes to sea waters and and how it is in the in the United States. Um, how, how are are the seas governed, and is it separate from how the United States is governed? Um, yes and no. Um, it's an incredibly complex topic. Of, I, Basically, you could take an entire course um, in graduate school or law school. I've taught such a course. It's a bit dry, I'll tell you, but you can take an entire course just learning about the law of the sea. But I think the the basics that the, that your, your sort of lay listener would be interested in, in knowing is that this goes back, I don't know, hundreds of years, but not in a formal sense, what we call customary international law. That is, countries just sort of agreed on how things should be. And there were there were sort of three core principles going back, um, and some legal philosophers established one named Grotius, who was a um, a Dutch uh, legal thinker, was was one of the big um, you know uh, voices behind uh, understanding these three principles. One, the first one is that the ocean is sort of the common common heritage to all humankind. That is, every country, maybe even every person, has a common interest in the ocean, and therefore it's not something that can sort of be seized by any one country or entity. Um, sort of coming you know, from that is this idea of freedom of navigation, that all countries should be able to navigate the globe, that you couldn't sort of cordon off areas and say, no, you can't sail here. But to sort of contrast against those first two is the idea that there is some sovereignty, that countries should be able to control in some ways, the waters that are nearest to their shores. Um, and there's a big distinction between internal waters, which are the waters within a country, and you know the 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 the, the oceans, the the seas, the the waters that are you know from the coast and beyond. 
And most of the governance that we have is focused on balancing these principles. You know, they are they can be contradictory. How can something be of common common heritage and you have freedom to navigate anywhere, but at the same time there's sovereignty? And so the beginning in 1956 and in several spurts over the next 26 years after that, there were negotiations to formalize what is now known as the Convention of the Law of the Sea, part of the you know, UN, the United Nations Convention. It took a long time because there were many disagreements. Um, the truth is the U.S. actually never joined this. It was, it was signed in 1982, uh, went into effect in 1994 when enough countries ratified it. But the U.S. never joined, and many in the in the security sector kind of worry about this. They believe it might be a mistake, especially now that the Arctic, due to climate change, is is opening up. I mean, the, the ice is melting. It's becoming easier and easier to navigate. There are resources that are now at, at, at arm's reach, and other countries are showing a real interest in the Arctic, and there are environmental and security and commercial interests there, and many worry that because the U.S. hasn't signed on, they don't really have the same legitimacy to critique other countries if they were to violate the Law of the Sea Convention. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, the U.S. recognizes all the rules and, and abides by the rules. So it's it's sort of doing this, this, this weird dance where it's um, on the one hand saying, no, we don't want to sign on. We don't want to uh, agree to um, to join and have other countries uh, be able to tell us what to do. But at the same time, just follows the rules anyhow, and hopes that other countries, or, or actually uh, demands that other countries will follow the rules. So it's a it's a very strange position, and many think uh, it's not a good idea in the long run. Um, and then within the U.S., um, you have both state and federal jurisdiction. So um, the, the way it's this is all carved up around the world it, you know, through the convention and for the U.S. as well, because it follows the rules, even though it hasn't signed on, is that every country has some claim out to 200 nautical miles from their coast. Um, that's called the exclusive economic zone. And basically that, that you have control over the economic resources, you know, any seabed mining or fishing, things like that. But you can't tell states what to do at all when it comes to navigation. So you see the balancing of the sovereignty and the, the freedom of navigation there. Within 12 miles from from the um, from the coast, it's called territorial waters. And there, there's more control, but still navigation is allowed, but only for the purpose of passing by. Can't stop there. So any country can navigate through those waters. It's called innocent passage, but they can't stop and do anything. And this is true even of, you know, very tight spaces, especially maybe of tight spaces like straits, because that's so key to getting things, to getting cargo across the world. You, every every country has a right to navigate through a strait, even though that might go, you know, right in the middle of a country's territorial waters. Um, and this includes military vessels as well. So there is freedom of navigation, but there is more um, sovereignty within that 12-mile zone. And then within the U.S., there's a three-mile zone um, that's that's reserved. At least some of the rights are reserved to individual U.S. states. Um, and actually, that three miles has a long historical significance. That was a, a an idea that you would have a lot of control over three miles from the coast goes back um, hundreds of years, and it's sometimes called the cannon shot. The idea was that's as far as a cannon could fire, and therefore, if you could control it with cannons, you could sort of, you know, chase other ships off. Then it was yours, and you had sovereignty over it. So there's a long history to a three mile. Um, Zone. So that's sort of 
look, you could you could go into much much more detail, and I've I've left out some things that are are probably a little too technical, mm-hmm. but that's the gist of it. And what is what would be like a common um, legal concern that is that is often fought? I guess I, I I wouldn't really know where if there was legal concern, would it be fought in courts? Would it be fought on like an international level? Yeah. How how are those? Yeah. Um, yeah. So- yeah. There are international courts that you can go to. The problem then is who is going to enforce those rulings. Mm-hmm. So like much of international law, it really relies on countries um, following um, the, the treaties that they've agreed to and, and following the, the rulings and respecting the rulings of courts. But of course, there's no international police that could come in and say, hey, you know, the court said this, so you must do that. Uh, it, it's just up to those countries agreeing to it. And Despite all of this, international law that is surprisingly effective, um, and that's because states really want reciprocity. Mm-hmm. They think, look, if we don't follow this, other countries won't follow this. And, and, and that's, for example, why the U.S., despite not having signed on to the law of the sea, follows the rules, because they want that reciprocity. But there are challenges all the time, um, ones that, that folks have probably heard of if they follow the news, um, in especially in East Asia, is that China's has claimed islands that other countries have also claimed, the Philippines and Vietnam and and Taiwan, for example. I mean, of course, China doesn't even recognize Taiwan's legitimacy, though, so that's another complication. And the U.S. is often intervening and sending ships that way just to kind of send the message, like, we do not respect the claims you've made over these islands Um and you know we do not we do not believe that the boundaries that you've set are the real legal boundaries. Mm. Um, sometimes, for example, a country might try to build an island. They might you know find a a very shallow area in the ocean and build on top of it. And there's a legal question about whether that's a legitimate island that can then extend their claims into the ocean. Um, there are all kinds of concerns about places like the Arctic, um, where you might ask, or are some of these places part of that common heritage? The Arctic is an ocean after all. You know, it's it's not a landmass. There's ice there, but there's no land. And so there are real questions about whether you follow just the standard rules of the law of the sea, or is it different in the same way we might think Antarctica or the moon are different and can't be claimed by anyone, but instead should be held in common trust. So there are all kinds of legal questions, but they're tricky and it's hard to know what will happen going forward, um, especially as these these interests in the Arctic um, grow and um, there may be some, some real challenges. Some countries may try to assert claims and it's, it's not clear what will happen. Um, so a lot of people are, are watching the Arctic closely to see, to see where that will go next. And what I'm kind of getting from this is that, you know, it, the laws of the sea kind of almost come down to international respect amongst, you know, different countries. So has there been any significant or major issues between certain countries or um, legal issues in the recent years with laws like this? You know, I, I think the, the, the Spratly Islands, are, those are the islands that are claimed by multiple countries in um, you know, they're not really even off the coast of China. They're they're fairly far south. But China has made a claim. I think that's the one that's been the sort of one of the big hotspots. But over the years, over the decades, there've been lots of different claims. Um, there was something at one point called the Cod Wars, where countries you know were were fighting 
a, a sort of cold war over fishing rights. Um, and so there have been various claims of those types throughout history. But I think the the hotspot lately has been sort of in East Asia, in the area between China, the Philippines, and Southeast Asia, and now the Arctic. So there, there are lots of cases that generally get resolved, um, you know, sometimes in court, sometimes you, you know, they, they sort of just simmer and it becomes, you know, less and less relevant and, it, and over, over time, it's not as important. But there are, there are certainly areas that we expect will continue to be um, areas of friction. Uh, there's a there's a kind of famous case, not be, not that it's so important in in the whole world, but but it's it's sort of important in the history of the two countries, um, where both the United Kingdom and Ireland lay lay claim to a very small little outcrop of rocks called Rockall, and it's way off the coast of Scotland and Ireland, more or less equidistant from both, um, but there's natural gas out there, and mm-hmm. so claiming that little island would in theory give you access to the natural gas deposits nearby that you could do, you know, you could do offshore drilling. Um, But this played into long histories of conflict between these two countries. Um, And, you know, there's even a famous, I don't know, famous, uh, if you're into sort of Irish rebel music, um, there's a band called the Wolf Wolf Tones that sang about Rockall, and they tied it to Irish mythology. You know, this belongs to Ireland because I don't remember the whole story, but Finn McCool did something and created it. It's Some of these things are not just about the legality, but they're really tied into some strong cultural ideas about who has claim over what and, and historical relationships between countries. So it goes a lot deeper than the law sometimes. And so kind of bringing it back to, to the United States, and if I, so if I'm trying to understand this correctly, the canon law is three miles out from where each state has sovereignty over, I guess, whatever is within that, their coastline. Is that correct? You know, access to some resources, some things that will be under federal jurisdiction, which is the truth for almost all law within the U.S. There's mm-hmm. this interplay between federal and state jurisdiction. And there are, I should say, there are a few exceptions. There are some states that have been able to lay a, um, a claim that goes out to nine miles, for example, under certain circumstances in the Gulf of Mexico. But three miles is the general rule. I, and I should be clear, it's not that they, that, that, that no longer has anything to do with canon. canon <laughs> it just sort of has a resonance in history. Three, why did they pick three miles? It's just an idea that's been out there for a long, long time. Yeah. And, and so really, um, that, what that question was kind of like leading to is, is are there any um, states within, you know, our country that are kind of like fighting over, over land for economic development or even over environmental policies or anything like that? Fighting amongst themselves, you mean between states? Yes. Our competition for I'm not for, aware of it okay. being something that happens between states because the, that's delineated pretty clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there may be something out there that I'm not aware of, but I think most states kind of know which which waters are theirs. There's probably more of a struggle between sometimes, and I mean a political struggle, between states and federal governments over what can and can't be done in these waters that are both under state and federal, federal jurisdiction. You know, what happens when states would think, for example, a state wants to do offshore drilling or and wants to license it, and the federal government 
either supports or doesn't support, and that can become a struggle. Mm-hmm. And and do, do you have any, because um, a lot of our viewers are from North Carolina, and th- this area is Eastern North Carolina, but viewers, listeners, sorry. Uh, but do you have any um, sort of, because your background is also in kind of like fisheries and, and uh, policies surrounding fisheries and, and trying to, to provide, is it more of an environmental kind of Ad, uh, consulting advice and, and, and research into the fisheries, or is it more kind of just specifically about policy and, and creating a future for these fisheries? Um, well, for me, for me, these things are just tied together in a way that you can't pull apart. Yeah. I, mean, I focus on sustainability, and I believe, and I think many are coming to believe that sustainability isn't just about the environment. In order for something to be sustainable, it has to serve the needs of people, socially and economically, and preserve the environment because people are dependent on the environment and the environment's dependent upon people. So if you have a policy that is going to protect the environment but is devastating to local communities, those communities will find a way to undermine the policy, right? So you need to balance. Of course, you need to have ecological sustainability. Everything goes you know, to pot if you, if you don't take care of it. If you're if you're not if you're going to allow overfishing to the point where fish stocks collapse, nobody benefits from that. Mm-hmm. But you also have to balance that against you know the needs of communities that are dependent upon fishing. So how can you find a way to allow as you know an economic benefit that's sorely needed? And sometimes it's a social thing too. These communities identify as fishing communities, and it's a big part of their culture. How do you do that within the bounds of sustainability? That's I'd say what my research focuses on. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And, and are there any states in the United States that are, you know, kind of doing exceptionally well when it comes to sustainability or they're, you know, kind of going above and beyond the policies to create sustainability in their community? Is you know, one- it, a lot of it is community by community. I mean, I, w- I would say, for example, Alaska has done a fairly good job with sustainability, um, but I, oftentimes it's individual communities because so much of this is community-based, and, and it's communities deciding to embrace new ideas, to embrace new technologies, to to try to to push for sustainability. And actually, a big part of what I've written about recently is the role of um, what what I call bridge organizations, which is a, a term that's been around for a while, but basically community-based organizations that help connect um, fishery stakeholders to sustainability because often the relationship between fishing communities and the government is stressed. You know, there's not enough trust. And some of this has to do with longstanding American cultural values that frankly, I think come out of the fact that the U S was born as a revolutionary state. So there's distrust of the government, distrust of taxation, which was a major issue in the revolution. It makes us different from other countries that are a little bit more, open to working with the government and aren't as skeptical about regulation and taxation because they see the benefits of it. The U.S., as I'm sure many listeners are aware, taxation's a hard sell. Lots of people aren't sure about the government. You know, Congress almost always has a pretty uh, negative approval rating uh, among Americans. And so these bridge organizations can help, you know, do just that. They can bridge the community to sustainability efforts, whether it's coming from the government or, or organizations or academia, and I'll, and sort of translate and say to the communities, look, we're working out, for, we're looking out for your interest here. 
that interest includes sustainability, but we'll make sure that this is done on terms that will also support your economic and social needs. And so it's those communities that have effective bridge organizations seem to be doing better. And I'd say that relationship between sustainability and fishing communities, which should be natural because those communities are dependent upon the resource, does better when it's not this direct um sometimes confrontation it feels adversarial or confrontational when it's the government coming in with regulations and the communities feel like they are being unfairly regulated um you know i'm i i'm not sure that they are being unfairly regulated in some cases although that's certainly possible but the perception matters more than the, the truth and the long-standing sort of difficulty of uh, relationships between citizens and government in the U.S., I think, plays into that. Mm-hmm. And and kind of segueing on to, into international policies, um, environmental policies like the Paris Accords and and a few other treaties that might be might be pushing sustainability and and uh, preserving the climate. What are your thoughts on those, and do you see those as being effective? Well, they're part of the the solution, but alone they don't do a lot, especially in a country that's as um, disaggregated as the U.S. I mean, we we have this federal system, so that means that there's lots of different levels of governance here, from the federal down to the state to municipal, county, and the work often has to be done at those lower levels. Mm-hmm. So it's great to have an agreement that will help make sure that we're all working together, that we have a common goal, but that agree- agreement is only as good as what's happening in each of the individual countries. And some countries have more of a top-down system where if they sign on to a treaty, their government can just then directly implement it. But in the U.S., it's more of a political dance, right? We have to get Congress on board to do things at the federal level. We have to get states on board to do things at the state level. And we have to get cities on board. And in fact, it's actually gone the other way. And I think it's a good thing recently where a lot of the action on, say, climate change has happened at the city and state level recently in the United States, especially the most effective actions. And that's good, I think, because we need bottom-up approaches to connect to those international agreements. Mm -hmm. So we need people on the ground level who are doing the work and who are putting pressure upwardly to meet the, the, the goals that are set in international agreements. Do you see that there's also kind of a push from companies as well to kind of push these, not international agreements, but more about climate and sustainability? It's more of a social, um, there's more social social pressure than, than before or economic yeah, I pressure? I think companies are, re- are reacting to two things. The first is the realization that their interests have changed. So for the longest time, we expected the private sector to fight any kind of environmental action because they thought this will make it more expensive to do business. But now that we're starting to see some real effects of climate change, I think many companies are saying, oh, actually, the equation has changed. Natural disasters could could really impair our infrastructure. They could hurt our economy in a way that would make it less likely that consumers can afford to buy our products. Mm. They're looking forward 40, 50 years and thinking, if we are on the same path, our economy will be much worse off. We'll be facing terrible natural disasters, and that will be bad for business. So I'm, you know, on some level, I want to give them credit for being, you know, socially and (laughs) environmentally aware. But I think it comes down to their bottom line, too, which is a good thing. 
Um, I want it to be about their bottom line because I want it to really, you know, motivate their interests strongly. But they're also the second thing I think they're reacting to, just the fact that especially younger generations, but plenty of people in older generations actually care about this a lot now and are starting to make decisions based on corporate commitments to doing the right thing, whether it's social or, or environmental, or oftentimes those things are linked. So I think they're both reacting to their to their consumers and they're thinking long-term and even not so long-term, it's starting to be short-term as we see more and more impacts and more serious impacts. It only makes sense to start taking action now. Mm-hmm. It will be more expensive to take action in the future. Mm-hmm. So what are some ways that, you know, if somebody like you're talking about, you know, more people are starting to get on this kind of train bandwagon of, you know, there's environmental issues that we need to fix and we need to work on, you know, what would you say to somebody is the best course of action for them to take to, you know, get involved or to just be more aware of these types of issues? Well, I think it's it's hard to to talk about this because it's it's tricky. On the one hand, I think it's important to, to recognize that we are far past the point where individual action alone will be enough. You know, we've learned this with recycling. It was sort of this dream that if we all just recycled, our plastic problem would go away. But that problem is so much bigger than each of us individually. That's not to say recycling isn't a good thing. It's just that it's not enough. It's sort of laying the groundwork for something bigger. And I think we have to think about climate change that way, too. It's really great for us to make, as individuals, you know, climate-conscious decisions about our transportation, about our energy use, you know, about all of the things that you would think about when you, when you think, I want to have a lower-impact life. But that's not, not going to be enough. That won't solve the problem. We have to pair that and maybe think of it as paving the way for higher-level action. So our individual actions are more about sending a message about what we expect higher levels of governance to do, what we expect you know, our state and federal governments to do, what we expect corporations to do. Ultimately, though, we have to push for those higher-level actions because that can have a much, much bigger impact than what we can do alone. And to be honest, it's unfair to ask individuals to be the ones taking action because it's so very confusing to know what to do. You know, if, if you're standing in the supermarket trying to figure out, you know, which food is most responsible to buy, you're looking at different tomatoes, and some of them are grown locally, and some of them are fair trade, and some of them are organic. How do you know which one is more important? How do you know what's the, you know, the biggest impact you can make? And the answer is, it's really hard for individuals to know that. It's unfair. You'd have to do so much research, and even then, the research can be murky. Is it better to use paper or plastic? It's not 100% clear, and it depends on how it's produced. And It's just too complicated. But we have government in place specifically to help us with complicated issues. And so I think we have to be asking government, full of experts, with the resources to, to, to do the research and then to put into place sensible policies we have to be asking more out of government, more out of the private sector. They have the wherewithal. They have the resources to do the work that would be very, very difficult and very unfair um, for us to have to do at the individual level. Mm-hmm. So that means demanding more out of politicians, making you know, your vote dependent upon thinking about climate change, making you know, decisions that will send messages to the, the private sector saying, look, I'm doing my best to purchase consciously 
But I also want to know that you know, I shouldn't go to the store and have a product available that would be disastrous for the environment or disastrous for people's rights. You know, we would ask that, that the government make sure that all of the choices before us are within a range of fair, reasonable and safe, instead of putting the burden on individuals to try to figure that out mm-hmm. and to do it in a way that would be affordable because the government has tools to make those those decisions affordable for people. Right now, so many environmentally conscious decisions are luxury items. And instead, we should make, that's the exact opposite. We want to incentivize environmentally friendly decisions. So we should find a way to make them very affordable. I, I, I love the way you articulated that answer. I think it was, I think it was very understandable for, for a listener like Emily and I, who, who kind of enjoy listening to these conversations, but at the same time don't have the same background and expertise and understanding and what goes on um, in, in policymaking, really. Um, so this will be our last question for you because we are kind of running at that 30-minute mark and, and um, we don't want to take up too much of your time. But basically, what, what would you see as a major frustration on the part of the fisheries? Mm. I think that the biggest frustration is this sense that and I'll speak just in the U.S., especially in the U.S., the mm-hmm. sense that for generations, these are folks who have known the water so well, who are, been, are so close to the, those resources and, you know, know, know the areas they fish like the back of their hand. And if the frustration I get from them is then being told, oh, you don't understand the resource. Mm-hmm. Here, let us tell you what needs to be done. I get it from both sides. I understand because scientists have also studied the resource, but in a very different way. And what I'd love to see is more collaboration between the two, because each of those sides has something to learn from the other. There's so much information built up in fishing communities that could really be helpful to researchers. And researchers have a special lens that they can use that can help those fishing communities remain sustainable for years to come. It's a matter of trying to get them together. And so, and I see that as the major frustration. There's sort of a disconnect. And that's what I really, really hope will solve um, in, the, in the coming years. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I, 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 can, I can understand that frustration because I feel like it's not only with fisheries, but let's say Native Americans who, who take care of their land and have their, have their own culture within the older than the United States and then and then people may come in and try to try to have policies and, and make decisions that kind of not bulldoze their their own laws and, and, and culture, but in a way it just kind of come in and, and try to take over in an area that's not really there. So I see I see a, a connection there. Um, but thank you so much for, for taking the time to speak with us today. I know Emily and I really appreciate it. And, and it's cool that you're on the East Coast, so our, our time zones could match up so we could record this. Well, I was very happy to join you. Very, very interesting questions. And uh, thank you for the invitation. Of course. All right. Thanks yeah. so much. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's going to wrap up this episode of What the Politics. You can always find new episodes on WNCT.com under the Features tab on the WNCT Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of What the Politics, and we'll see you next time. (music) 